I'm particularly thrilled about today's evening, you know, because we don't have many architects from India go through our portals here at the university. And to have one with such eminence as Raj Rewal is an absolute pleasure and honor. And so it's, you know, thank you, Raj, for doing this. And I know you're traveling and doing many lectures. And I think I was sort of thinking about this in the context of, and for some of you, you're familiar with this, and some of you who are not. And I was sort of thinking that uh, in the context of South Asia and India and India's independence trajectory, uh, of course, we had the influence of Corbusier and Louis Kahn. And then we had a first generation of Indian architects. Uh, uh, and uh, it's interesting what those influences were. We had Kanvinde, who was sort of studied at the JJ School of Ar Architecture in Mumbai and then came to Harvard University at the GSD. I think he must have been among the first Indians who sort of studied there. And then you had uh, Joseph Allen Stein, who came from California through a completely different trajectory. Uh, and uh, of course, Doshi and his connection to Corbusier. Uh, and then Charles Correa, who studied at MIT. Uh, and so, of course, Raj Rival is part of that galaxy, I would say, of post in the first generation post-independence architects, but the youngest of that lot. Uh, and his trajectory is completely uh, different. And I think that's what makes his work uh, stand out and interesting from that perspective. Because he sort of bought into architectural production in India at that moment of our post-independence, a completely diff different set of uh, experiences and exposure. Uh, and so therefore, that trajectory has been very distinct when I look at it in the context of our post-independence sort of landscape, in a sense. He studied in London and in Delhi, uh, and then worked with uh, uh, Michel Ecochard uh, uh, in that office in Paris. And earlier, while we were coming to this lecture, I was sort of asking him about those experiences. And they were very interesting, because Michel, he was really an urban designer, town planner, working at a completely different scale in North Africa. Africa in landscapes that um, in some ways resonated with what was potentially happening in India. And so those were the kinds of influences uh, that uh, Raj uh, brought to India. Uh, and then going back to Delhi, uh, he started his practice in 1962. Uh, and from 63 to 72 for a whole 10 years, he also taught at the School of Planning and Architecture in Delhi. And I think that had a kind of seminal influence on that institution, which went on to become uh, one of the prominent schools of architecture. But I think that decade, from my understanding in its history, uh, his presence there uh, was incredibly important. He also opened a second office in Tehran. Uh, and I can see the connection between the experiences, things that he was exposed to in North Africa, and then Tehran, which was where a lot was happening. Uh, and uh, I think they designed a large university. But in 74, as things changed in Iran, Raj was sharing that the project didn't go through, and they came back. But that was, again, another kind of influence that became part of his experiences that I think then informed the kind of trajectory he took, and you can see it in his work as he shares it with us. And I think in this kind of landscape uh, that 
he, he, he sort of set these experiences, it becomes clear also why he took tectonics so much seriously. And he was sharing again that uh, in the office that he worked in Paris, one of the things he did was a space frame which got built. And then when I look at the Hall of Nations, he said I was prepared to do the Hall of Nations uh, because I'd already worked on a space frame. But tectonics, I think, became something that became very important in the way he approached architecture and extended this rigor of geometric, uh, you know, position of historic structures into his contemporary work, sometimes literally, uh, and translating it through abstraction in these contemporary and modern buildings. And so the kind of resonance you have with history and mon monumentality in his work, I think, comes from these sorts of experiences uh, and interests. He sort of also demonstrated in startlingly fresh, refreshing ways the localizing of this technology. Uh, for example, the permanent exhibition complex at Pragrati, Pragrati Maidan in New Delhi, which was 70 to 72, uh, where he translated this sort of space frame uh, into concrete, into a handmade concrete building. And that translation itself uh, was very uh, unique because it was cast in situ and fabricated as the largest space frame in the country at that time, uh, and therefore has local relevance in comprehensible ways. This was demolished, actually, just in 2017. And I think uh, this is an important question. And it triggered off an amazing debate about the relevance and relevance of the conservation of contemporary architecture in India. And there have been a spate of other such threats, the Kala Academy in Delhi, by in Goa by Charles Correa more recently. Uh, and I think this, you know, he was also sharing with me how he fought this in court. And finally, the judgment of the court was that the owner of the building has greater rights on the building than the architect and the author. Uh, and it's an interesting legal question. But of course, what this leads us to think about is what are the narratives that we can construct as a community, both a community of architects, academics, and a nation about what we think as part of our collective heritage. Uh, and I think the, the, the issues that we as a community in India face by the demolition of that building is a critical one, uh, and I think is going to open up a lot of debate. And maybe in, after the lecture, we can spend a few minutes getting your sort of thoughts on this. In, in 1986, uh, Rajivall became the curator of a very important exhibition called Traditional Architecture in India. This was part of the festivals of India that the government of India at that time under Pupul Jaikar with Indira Gandhi's patronage was sort of doing for crafts, for textiles, Martan Singhs, many other you know, wonderful curators uh, were looking at showcasing, but also trying to understand India's rich tradition. And Raj Raval and Charles Correa were selected for architecture. And these two books, which were really catalogs, have become, at least for practitioners, the book that the Vistara exhibition by Charles Correa produced and the catalog that Raj Rival produced have become seminal for practitioners, you know, 20 or 30 years later, because it was looking at tradition through the eyes of practitioners. And so there was a kind of syn synthesis there of even our tradition in the way it was understood, presented, and even what was curated uh, that gave our tradition another kind of relevance. And I think for my generation, they became fantastic tools or instruments by which we could begin to understand our tradition for deployment in the contemporary uh, landscape. And so I think that was an important um, aspect of his work too. 
His humanist approach to architecture, I think, responds to the complexities of rapid urbanization, the demands of climate, cultural traditions, building crafts, and technologies. And his built work comprises a wide range of building types. Uh, and besides the Hall of Nation, which has been known for many reasons, there's the Nehru Pavilion, the Scope Office Building Complex, the Central Institute of Educational Technology, a building he did for the World Bank, uh, and a really seminal housing project for the Asiad Village Complex. Uh, and then later, the National Institute of Immunology uh, in New Delhi, and the Parliament Building, the Parliament Library in New Delhi's Parliament Complex, which is a complex that was designed by Baker and Lutyens. So it was making also an, a, a large modern intervention in you know, what we would consider a historic kind of district. And that, again, has come up for contemporary debate because the government has just announced that they're going to revamp this entire Latians complex to modernize it. And you know, everyone in India is, again, grappling with how do you deal with this? What are the narratives by which we can actually, as a community, address this question? And so I think these are both works, uh, one demolished, one that stands there, that I think gives us pointers about the importance of all of this. He also designed the Smiley Center in Lisbon, which I believe was a competition for the Aga Khan. It's a Jamaat Khana for the Aga Khan and a center in Portugal. Rajawal has been recognized uh, with many awards. I don't name them all, but he has the gold medal of the Indian Institute of Architects. The Mexican Association of Architects has awarded him, uh, and uh, monographs that have been published in French, English, among many other recognitions. Uh, housing has, and his commitment to housing has been uh, very central. We were talking earlier, and he said, we used to call it low-cost housing. I think they call it affordable now, as it's social. And it's interesting that through all these nomenclatures that change, he has continued to be um, committed to it. And a recent publication is actually titled Humane Habitat at Low Cost. So Rajiwal's work, just in summary, has been integrally and richly steeped in the contextual references that he kind of discerns from the landscape that he works in. Uh, it sort of um, begins to juxtapose traditional concepts and contemporary syntax in a kind of reflective manner. Uh, and he's sort of fascinated with this idea of weaving these expressions uh, together and across this incredible uh, typology, uh, engaging climate, climate sensitivity, but also promotion of craftsmanship and new technologies uh, simultaneously. And the last thing I want to sort of say is that in recent times, uh, he is really among that generation, some of whom have gone, very few uh, around, uh, he has spoken very forcefully about public architecture in forums and the agency of architecture in the public realm. Uh, he has I've been at venues with him where he's pulled up the state in public forums for not providing the patronage to young architects. Uh, he's spoken up on the conservation of the modern legacy uh, and continues to be, for all of us, an important voice in the debate of contemporary architecture. And so with great expectations to emotionally connect to your work, Raj, I invite you to now deliver your lecture. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, thank you, Raul, for, very, for your very kind words. I'm very happy to be in Boston. I had taught here for short periods, uh, both at the uh, MIT. So I have very happy memories of teaching and also when you are teaching, you are learning. So Boston for me was also a learning experience and a very valuable one. Also, uh, the let's say the three 
three museums here, uh, particularly the Museum of Fine Arts, had a wonderful collection of uh, Dr. Kumaraswamy. He was the curator here for many years, and actually he had collected some of the finest miniature paintings, statues, and other things from India, Japan, uh, Korea and Southeast Asia and collected them for the first time. So I was very happy to see them. Uh, the other thing which uh, I enjoyed being here when I was there, uh, the sort of intellectual ambience of Boston, I don't know. I'm sure the uh, professor like uh, Rahul and many others here, you keep it up and little controversial uh, uh, aspects of uh, working on the projects, designs, etc. Uh, I had also, uh, when I was teaching at the uh, Aga Khan uh, section of the MIT, um, come across many students from, uh, from, let's say, Turkey and other parts who, with whom one could interact. And I think it was a very enjoyable period for me. So uh, it's with the sort of, uh, um, I'm very happy to be in Boston from those reasons. Um, today I want to talk about something uh, which is, I think, perhaps uh, well known amongst all the architects. Is, is perhaps the inner feeling is always there, the rasa. Uh, the rasa actually means as uh, already described means juice or a spirit. Um, now, what should be the spirit of the buildings? Unfortunately, or in some ways fortunate, perhaps, the, what's happening is the architecture is becoming very sensational today. And to attract attention, the buildings are very, if I use the word flamboyant or not, but they're sort of signature architect signature architecture and sensational. And sometime it, it could be said without much substance. So uh, I thought I'd bring to, uh, to architectural discourse an idea which I had discussed with Charles very much, okay, what should be the expression? Uh, because uh, the, um, in a way, in a very simplest manner, one could say the rasa is an expression or an ambience which a building has within itself, what it evokes. Now, a building could evoke sacred, as in the church uh, buildings, or it could evoke, uh, let's say, very imperial, if it were the Alcazar. I've just seen it in uh, uh, Madrid, a sort of power of the kings, or other kind of feeling. Now. That brings to, then what is the spirit of our times? If it's not religious fervor or imperial power. So I would say the, I would consider the spirit of our times, I would like to argue, let's say it's rational humanism. Perhaps a lot of people might agree with that. So how to express that in our buildings, if that is the spirit so it's the, on one side, we have rasa, which is almost a timeless, emotions are timeless. And uh, the, the, the works of architecture, like the works of painters, poets, writers, I think if we have to get to, to have greater meaning, uh, and not only to be expressing how much money you have won for your clients, I think it has to go a little further in a certain directions. And I hope uh, I can bring 
for discussion, if nothing else, in certain values of architecture, which I feel uh, are, let's say, predominantly from India. Uh, the Japanese architects have brought a certain flavor uh, to modern architecture, Finnish architecture, architects like Aalto brought something else. So I think from our part of the world, I would say that we should be able to contribute towards modernism, another kind of spirit. And actually speaking, I think I see many students from India and also other parts of Asia. I think we are going to build much more now in the next 20 years or 25 years uh, than anywhere else. And the building activity needs to be geared up in a certain direction that we don't uh, make copies of copies of copies, which has been done, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, in Beijing or in China, uh, because for three years I made a building there. And I was very sorry to see that the so far, at least, the, these were replicas of what had been built in the West. And uh, also not a very original interpretation of it. I think in India we were lucky to have Corbusier and Khan very early, so who could express certain kind of emotions or as I actually speaking. So I think I'm uh, sort of continuing in that manner. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll just sort of, I'd like to just make one or two comments and then open it up. You know, what struck me were, were two things which I think uh, might be worth even just getting your responses. One was just the housing project, still you showed the British Council work. But even to the point you went to the Immunology Institute, which gets much larger, and you talked about this as scale and how do you make it harmonious. You know, and what struck me, especially in the context of how we build today, is that actually the texture and the material was a form of unification in that, you know, in today's world, we codify wealth or economic groups through the kind of finishes of buildings. You can almost read a building and you can tell that it's more expensive than the other. And had you not mentioned that the British Council was air conditioned or that it was even for the British Council, I think the harmony also in the form, I mean, I don't think the word equity is right, but there's an illusion of equity by just the way the architecture is organized and it's finished. And sometimes even that illusion of equity in a very non-equitable world is, I think, an important contribution in the way you deal with architecture. And I think in addition to that, the disaggregation of form also, even if the building gets very large, keeps the scale not only human, but I think it also has this implication, and I think it's important in today's world for architects to create this this, this sense of equitable uh, environments, which are otherwise buildings in their disposition, in their volume, in the way they are finished, and the expenses of the material which sort of speak for them, actually create huge messages of inequity. And I think I appreciated that very much in that first set of projects. Uh, so again, just a comment and if you'd like to respond. And the second was, you know, I was sort of thinking uh, of ornament uh, because you're building in contexts where ornament is so important and one can read symbolism in the 
choice of red sandstone versus white sandstone uh, and what you're trying to denote. But it's interesting that both in the Lisbon project and in that roof of the parliament, that one beautiful image with a circle, which is very compelling, actually ornament fuses completely with structure. You've kind of collapsed those two. You don't separate it, which is, I think, uh, very interesting because at, at scales like that, uh, it can become superfluous uh, and hard to control uh, in terms of design. And I thought that struck me as being uh, incredibly beautiful in the way it actually becomes part of the structure. So these were just, like I said, comments. If you'd like to respond, great. Otherwise, we'd open it up for questions. First of all, thank you. I think you, ex you have expressed uh, much better than what I could have. So, uh, But all the same, I think one thing is... Um, I, I mean, going towards more monumental works, let's say, which are the later, I haven't even shown the Punjab one, is um, I progress from what, I, what you may call affordable housing. So to, to give them a kind of sp space surrounding it. So it's very humane. So, and I had started my um, topic about saying, the spirit of our time and, or the, and the rasa. And the spirit of our time to me is sort of, uh, let's say, humane consideration. I think that is the most important aspect uh, I think uh, we can bring from, let's say, uh, not only my work, but some of my contemporaries, others. Charles has done similar works, similar values, and also, uh, so let's say, the idea of uh, let's say, what is central theme of the work. That's why perhaps probably the British housing and the sort of very low-cost housing uh, almost look similar because I couldn't sort of change because this is upscale or this is low scale or something like that. So to that extent, so it's true. I am very interested in architecture and uh, been looking at a lot of the Aga Khan Award for architecture monuments. I've been to the Portugal uh, Lisbon Center recently where His Highness's Diamond Jubilee celebrations in Lisbon. And we visited the center and it's, I think it's just as beautiful now as it's, it's still relevant now, it, the way it looks. And it's very, very, I, I see in your work, there's a lot of soul. Know, which I feel sadly is missing a lot in contemporary Indian architecture, as I say, it's ornamentation or it is, there is, I mean, especially the low-cost housing is so monotonous. It doesn't feel like a home anymore. You know, when you look at the houses of earlier time, not just works of yours, but they had some elements where it was a home, the little bit of ornamentation or a little bit of design elements, a little courtyard, the balconies, the terraces, which is missing now. And I wish more people get inspired by you uh, with the work. I can see this very Indian essence. You talked about your Indian essence. It's very grounded, very earth your work. You know? And it's, so it's uh, because I was once uh, in charge of sort of. I'm, I'm not an architect, but uh, we had done a low-cost housing, and I was struggling with all these elements that you talked about. I've, but I also wanted to just ask you: Is that uh, you know, in I live in Bombay, in Mumbai now, and I see there's a lot of beautiful architecture, 
heritage, the history of architecture is almost unraveling as you go, visit from place to place, the kind of homes that were created, right from the British to the contemporary to the uh, Indo-Saracenic designs or whatever. Uh, is there no way that we can preserve those buildings as you're part of that uh, organization which you set up as a living heritage museum? Because they are buildings which should be preserved. They're, they're teaching the connection of the flow of architecture. Is there any way that could be initiated that some buildings are preserved? I think this is a very important uh, question or very important uh, consideration at this time because you see uh, what's happening is the value of the land is much more than the, I'm talking about cash value, not the inherent architectural value of the buildings. So when that becomes much more, then um, let's say the owners or the builders or the promoters would like to build something to um, bring them more cash, more money. And as somebody said, uh, form follows finance. And <laughs> I think uh, this is a very dangerous situation <coughs> to occur, particularly for some very good buildings, I mean, which are there, which must be preserved. And let's say people understand that don't touch sacred building, let's say mosque or a temple or few buildings of that type, but anything else is fair ground, let's demolish it. I see it even in Boston, I mean, this is, let alone anywhere else, I mean, the buildings which uh, have been, which have vanished and something else has come about that. So I think there has to be a concentrated effort by the community perhaps instigated by the architect um, or who may take the lead uh, in this matter and also certain legal uh, framework by which the buildings can be preserved. It's a, it's a very difficult task. I think everybody has to contribute to it. The question is not whether he's an Indian architect or an architect, but whether he's a modern architect or a not modern architect and it seems to me that there's something very intelligent in the way you framed your presentation in claiming modernity that is something that transcends the genealogy of modernity that comes out only from a western source and it is very intelligent that you put Fatehpur Sikri and the, um, the observatory in Delhi as the examples that you're looking at because there is a certain abstraction in that kind of architecture instead of say saying that I'm going to put what everyone expects to be the symbol of India, the Taj Mahal. And you're coming back to say that I'm widening my frame of reference, but I'm basically a, a modern architect. And it seems to me that's the answer, if you want to, whether you need to be an Indian architect or a modern architect. He's a modern architect with an Indian flavor, but he's not basically a modern architect in the way of saying, I just espouse modernity. He's saying modernity has to espouse what I'm bringing into it. I don't know if you will agree with that reading. Um, I think the word modernity has so many connotations. Uh, you will all agree with that. But let's say, I'm talking now about the Lisbon Ismaili Cultural Center. Uh, now. I wanted it to be distinctly modern, but at the same time to have its lineage from Islamic world. So I think if uh, modernity has to succeed as a philosophical 
or theoretical um, uh, it has to come from its own sources i think uh, i remember an interview which uh, uh, an italian journalist with had with the, one of the ayatollahs and she said you modernity is not like a chocolate you give to somebody you know that okay now you are modern the modernity has to come from within its own sources and i think that's very important uh, at this stage uh, because uh, as i said uh, the japanese have brought certain aspect of modernity to the uh, to the main theme of modernity in the at least in the modern architecture uh, same way i would say some of the writers uh, from indian subcontinent have brought the idea of modernity uh, sociologists etc so i think uh, gandhi was in, in his own way it's, it's his birthday tomorrow or something like that <laughs> so i <laughs> so he was very modern man in his own way but his modernity sprang from some other sources let's say different sources then let's say it might have been abraham lincoln or winston churchill so i think the uh, the idea of modernity has to be expanded uh, in a way and uh, or, or to to have different strands which become universal i'm sorry there's a question here yeah okay well th th thanks very much raj and it it takes me back to the festival of india which also started with the fatpur sikri and jaisalmer images so it really takes one back to the spirit of of kind of those times which engaged with those places and the question i had was more on the first part on the timeless rasa ideas because it seems to me that you've brought a conjunction with this body of work and some theories of aesthetic emotion uh, that are coming out if i understand rasa theory correctly it's coming out of a more of a a, a, a theater tradition in Kashmiri aesthetics. So it was all of the emotions in the, that are presented in theater uh, that are uh, uh, less developed and applied to architecture per se, and it's only when you bring in, as you're mentioning, this narrative structure that you start to get the performative aspects. And it seems like there's a lot of potential to develop this idea of Rasa theory with respect to architecture that up to now is underdeveloped and actually it has some focus too because in the rasa theory all emotions are open anger uh, disgust uh, and uh, yet you have a have a particular strand of emotion and i wonder with this uh, reference to humane consideration uh, you would care to articulate a little bit more on what the emotion or if you would like to say anything more about that you said a lot in the the work, but I'd love to hear more because it's it's setting aside these anger and disgust and all the things that are also part of our contemporary world. Um, that's very interesting because I have grappled with this particular aspect of uh, emotion. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's true in performing arts, in even in writing, you can have an emotion, let's say laughter, anger, disgust, all kinds of things. But I think for architecture there have been, historically, there are two emotions which have been very predominant. One is power, and one is a certain kind of gentleness, in a way. You know, certain buildings have a uh, sort of 
quiet, it's sort of languid feel about it, gentleness, and the other's power. And I think you can add at various times it has been sacred, it's been, uh, let's say, moving in a different manner. So I think architecture perhaps uh, has to deal with certain emotions, which are, but then become very powerful because it's all engrossing. You see the, uh, um, I mean the whole city, um, let's say, I consider Venice to be a work of art, let's say. The whole city is uh, sort of you go through, you have, uh, you are transported in a certain manner, I mean, which is, um, let's say, cannot be done by poetry even. So I think the architecture has to find its own uh, emotional content, and that's what I've been grappling with to some extent. No, no, thank you very much. Thanks you all for the questions. And, you know, I, it just, it's, it's just thank you very much, Raj, for sharing this and to just resonate many of the questions and observations from the audience. I think it's just wonderfully encouraging to see, you know, how a set of values get carried through periods that change dramatically as Bish sort of outlined or what Nasser was sort of talking about in terms of modernity and what that means and making these connections to the past and demonstrating how they can be done and what can be excavated. And I think to see it over a career like yours is, is really very encouraging and inspiring. So thank you very much for sharing all that with us. And I want to again thank the South Asia Institute and the Arkhan program at MIT for collaborating and making this possible. And thank you all for coming. Thank you.